You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Historical Yarns Podcast, the show where we talk about knitting from the past and bring it into the present. Welcome to episode one of season one of the Historical Yarns Podcast. I'm Rachel Rodden. And I'm Heather Boyd. And this is the history of Shetland Lace, part one. If you're new to the podcast, here's a bit of background on how we organized it. Every episode will be made up of two segments, one where we discuss the knitting traditions, history, and techniques, and then a second where we talk about the Zetland Knit Along, which is a Shetland-style shawl that I designed to go with the podcast. And if you need to get your hands on that pattern, just head over to Ravelry and you can download it there. We wanted to start out with some information about the geography and sort of the area of the world that we're working with here. Yeah, because these areas that we're going to be talking about, they're they're near each other, but far enough away that they had developed some really interesting techniques and things. And so we thought it'd be important to give you the location so that you could have some context for where these, these places are. So the Shetland Islands, they are part of Scotland, of course. They are about 50 miles northeast of Scotland, and they are made up of a about 100 islands, I think a few more than 100, up in the North Sea, I believe it is. Very, it's practically Arctic up there, I think. <laughs> yeah, and do you fly out to the islands or take a boat? How do I you get out there? I think you can do it both ways. Um, <laughs> I oh. <laughs> it sounds like horrible either way, right? It must be wondered. so hard. <laughs> like, how do you actually get there? I think they have ferries because when um, my husband and I were in Scotland a couple of years ago, I was really wanting to get out to one of the cool islands out there, you know? I mean, any of them really because they're all so beautiful and yeah. just amazing. But the ferries, they're very specific schedule and... <sighs> Even times of year because the water is so rough. So um, I I think that's that's the only way to get out there. I'm sure you could do like a private plane or something like that, too. But very main way. That's probably something that helped them develop their tradition, right? If they're pretty isolated. Yes, they (laughs) are. There's not much to do except for (laughs) handcrafts. That's That reduces it Mm. too much. But really... um, but yeah, when you have an isolated geographical area like that, you can talk more about this <laughs> as the ar- archaeologist, but you tend to have a more specific uh, type yeah. of culture going on they, with less blending in from surrounding areas. Yeah, they get like really good at certain things, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, Shetland, their thing just became this lace knitting. So the like we said, it's a there's about 100 islands out there, but really only 16 of them are populated. And that total population is like 23,000. So it's pretty small, really, for such a large grouping of islands. And then just a little bit of geography information. It's a pretty rugged coastline. They've got lots of low rolling hills, but it is really, really cold, like subarctic kind of climate. So obviously it makes sense that they would have developed ways to keep themselves warm Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I bet the sheep like it right yeah they grow really nice they do yeah yeah in that climate yep um okay so jumping into like the early development of the craft I guess you could say the earliest samples that we found date to around 1830 ish but those samples are are not they're pretty fine samples they're definitely not basic so you can assume that they were developed even earlier than that and then we just don't have any evidence of it earlier, but it's uh, it's pretty cool that that's when they when they started really like honing their craft. So 
So probably they were doing it from time immemorial, but really around mm-hmm. that time they started to refine it because they were getting word of popularity of different imported shawls and pashminas from India and Kashmir. Mm-hmm. And in the late 1800s, Empress Josephine and Queen Victoria um, helped popularize them, the different shawls and the technique of Shetland knitting because they really took a liking to them and they wore them and they mm-hmm. even gave them as gifts to visiting dignitaries of state. I think I even read somewhere that um, Harriet Tubman received one when she met Queen Victoria. Oh, how cool is that? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, that was one way, I guess, they, that the tradition ended up spreading all around the world because, yeah. you know, famous person. I know. It's really cool. They like figured out almost a way to get some marketing by getting the shawls out into the upper classes of society, the queen even, and all of a sudden everybody wanted a shawl like that. So mm-hmm. it's really neat how they managed to to get their craft out there like that. And from what I was reading too, the um, the imported shawls and stuff from India, Kashmir, Persia, places like that, a lot of them had designs on them, like the ferns and stuff like that. And that's where some of the Shetland stitches came into play, which we'll talk about more in the next episode. But you can really see how they were inspired almost to the point of copying some of the designs that they were seeing in these imported shawls. What I also thought was really interesting was that shawls weren't really a thing until the 1800s. Like before the 1800s, women didn't really wear anything that could be really called a shawl. I mean, they kind of did, especially in places where it was really cold, like, you know, Scotland, of course. But the upper class, you know, places in England and stuff like that, they just weren't really wearing shawls like that. They were, but then that style of dress that was really light and flimsy and flowy in the early 1800s, they just needed something over their shoulders to keep themselves warm, which Mm -hmm. is where the shawl really started coming into play. So I thought that bit of like fashion history was really, really interesting. Yeah, that is actually when you consider like, I guess necklines were kind of going down around the same time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, they'll come back up with Victoria, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but during the Regency but, area, yeah. era, they, were, they went down for a little while. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, man. Well, anyway, so it was a very much a family oriented craft and the women in the family would hone their their skills. And then um, by the mid to late 1800s, many were making a living selling these fine shawls to the upper class ladies. So um, they were they were really it was really booming at that point by the late 1800s. Mm, Sort of like cottage industry. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely cottage industry in the early 20th century when the first and second world wars were going on a lot of factories were used for making things for the war so um, the fine knitted lace stuff that people could have bought from a factory before wasn't really available and that's where the ladies on Shetland really stepped it up because you know women still wanted their fine pretty lacy things Mm -hmm. so and they couldn't get them as easily so they had to buy them from an actual hand knitter mm-hmm. which I thought was really cool well a certain class of lady that could actually afford it right true very true <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're still talking about like upper class ladies for sure yeah um, but they they're so light and frothy it doesn't seem like they would be warm enough for <laughs> yeah I, from what I was reading oh right hap 
So HAP HAP uh-huh. is what the ladies on Shetland would call the shawls that they would wear, and they were heavier and more rustic and um, unbleached or undyed or whatever. It was just like the natural um, fibers, and those were much heavier and hard hard wearing. Mm-hmm. So that's what they were wearing, and with that, less lace, probably. Uh, yeah, I think it was <laughs> mostly holes. Yeah, <laughs> a lot less holes. Maybe some like something lacy around the edges, but that was pretty much it. So yeah, um, yeah they they weren't wearing those those gossamer shawls themselves yeah. they're well, what I for can understand that <laughs> yeah. well living in Nevada I mean I've definitely yeah. knitted I remember knitting that Eleanor cowl from Knitty mm-hmm. and it's full of lace and oh, I, the first time I yeah. put it on and went out in the cold I was like this is useless it's doing nothing. <laughs> this, this is the wind blew this Nevada yeah. wind which like yeah oh yeah it gets very strong here it blew mm-hmm. right through all the holes of that lace and I was like I'm gonna send this to a friend in North Carolina yeah <laughs> for sure <laughs> yeah I imagine it was the same thing for them too you, I mean you got to go I don't know get some chicken eggs in the morning or whatever you're not gonna <laughs> you need a nice heavy shawl before you walk out that door <laughs> oh my goodness oh my gosh all right, so let's talk about um, the sheep breeds a little bit. Shetland sheep are, of course, adapted to live in the cold, windy islands. The coat itself is very thick with a long staple, so that makes it really strong. And they could spin it really thin because you need a nice long staple length. And by staple, I mean the length of the fiber, fiber. when yeah. they yeah when they shear the sheep. In case anybody doesn't know what that means, so the staple length is nice and long, which makes it really stable for spinning into super thin yarn. What I found really interesting about that actually is that a lot of the traditional yarn was single ply, mm-hmm. which uh, people often shy away from single ply yarn these days because it can, oh, it can it can um, fall apart a little bit, especially mm-hmm. if you have to rip it out a couple times on your project. Like it's just not always the most yeah. hard wearing of yarns, but. I don't know. I'm getting the impression that these ladies were pretty expert at it. So I'm guessing they weren't doing too much Mm -hmm. ripping out and they could knit with whatever they wanted. (laughs) I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, single ply tends to stick to itself a Mm -hmm. little bit more and, but maybe that's an ad, you know, an advantage rather than a disadvantage when you're coming to knit lace anyway. Yeah. With this type of stuff. So. Yep. And of course they were primarily using hand spun yarn because you know, that's what they had up there. They weren't sourcing it from mills or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they spun it all themselves. That whole sheep to shawl thing that has been kind of popular in recent years, that was, they were the original <laughs> sheep to shawl people back then. <laughs> they started that movement. <laughs> that's amazing. I, yeah. And uh, what about colors? Oh, color. So um, from what I was reading, they would knit the shawls in whatever color the the fiber was, whatever mm-hmm. it was. Um, naturally, so they didn't do a whole lot of dyeing. No, well, not not before knitting. So mm-hmm. that's what's really interesting about this stuff is that they didn't do any dyeing before they knit with it. So it was usually brown or taupe or cream or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then after they were done, they would bleach it to get it super white because that's what the upper class ladies wanted. They wanted their super white, creamy, frothy shawls, you know. Mm. So they would bleach it to get that color. And then they would also dye them black sometimes for anybody who wanted a morning shawl. Oh. Um, and then they would also dye them red because apparently red was the color that you wore for weddings. Mm. Yeah, I didn't know that red yeah. was like the 
color for weddings, especially after that Game of Thrones episode. I can't oh, think no. of red in weddings without thinking of that episode. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know, keep red away from weddings yeah. now. But <laughs> well, I think of it as a color that signifies luck in, oh. in Asian nations. Oh, it does, true. Yeah, but yeah. Not, not in Scotland. I didn't know that. I know. that was that. Was, we'll definitely put our sources in, in the show notes so that you guys can see where we got our information from. But yeah, that's what I was reading is that they would dye it red. Now, of course, it would be like a rusty red mm-hmm. because they're using all natural dyes, whatever they could find to mm-hmm. get the color. So Probably matter. Or yeah. Like yeah. Something like that. So anyway, I thought that was really cool. Fantastic. As far as what they would actually be knitting with, it was um, straight, straight needles, of course. Circular needles are a invention of, you know, the 20th century. So mm-hmm. they were using straight needles and they called them pins. They were like knitting pins. And they even had that technique where they would tie a waistband. They had like a waistband that they tied around their waist. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And the with pin. With the rest. Like a rest for the pin. Yeah, exactly. You'd stick the pin into the waistband and then it provided like stability that meant you could work mm-hmm. just right on the ends of the needles and like go really, really fast with it. So oh. the ones who were super good were would would do it that way, I guess. Yeah. It's cool. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people who see Shetland shawls now, they do associate them with the really, really fine work, almost like needlepoint, like teeny tiny yarn, Mm -hmm. very intricate lace. Like Mm -hmm. you've seen them used as baby blankets for the royal babies. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where like the wedding ring shawl comes from, right? Uh That is so fascinating. And okay, so I definitely knit a wedding shawl for myself. Mm-hmm. We don't have to talk about the drama that went on behind that, but like <laughs> suffice to say, I had a wedding shawl on my wedding day. <laughs> it was done like six hours before I got married, but that's fine. <laughs> I think I've seen pictures of it blocking yeah. on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that what I didn't huge. know, yeah. it is, it's huge, but it definitely couldn't be pulled through my wedding ring because uh, I just, it's knit on bigger needles. It's slightly yeah. bigger yarn. I didn't know about the whole idea of the wedding ring shawl, which is, um, they could often weigh like, well, up to two ounces, usually less than two ounces, mm-hmm. but they would be like six feet square. Yeah. So super giant and light enough and fine enough that they could pull it through, not the man's wedding band, the woman's like tiny mm-hmm. little wedding band. So wasn't that sort of the really test cool. to see like how good of a knitter the woman was? I think was. so. Yeah. Or spinner too, <laughs> yeah, right? Because you had to spin the yarn super fine mm-hmm. and then you had to knit it super fine And too. anyone who's ever spun yarn out there, especially with, you have to consider, uh, you know, not all of these people had spinning wheels. Mm-hmm. They probably used drop spindles. Oh my gosh, they probably did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that is... That's a challenge. Yeah. So it's a real skill. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, if I could go back and do it over... I would definitely like try to make a wedding ring shawl. Maybe I should try to do it anyway. Because yeah, why not, right? It'd be super fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my husband might kill me if I did another wedding shawl. <laughs> oh, Only yeah. if it's the day before your wedding. Oh my God. <laughs> or your, your vow renewal. Ra- right? Oh yeah, there we go. Vow renewal. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, that's about everything we wanted to talk about as far as geography, development of the designs and things and the materials and um, now we're going to take a quick break and we'll start talking about the first week's clue of the shawl. Welcome back to episode one. So in this section, we're going to discuss the pattern and the things that you might want to know. This first episode will be about the yarn and the gauge and things like that. If you're knitting along with us, you can grab a copy of the Zetland pattern on Ravelry and then um, get your yarn, get your needles, get your materials, and you will be all set and ready to start. So... 
Speaking of the materials, the yarn that I recommend is a, it's a Shetland wool. Well, actually, it's a Scottish wool. I can't actually be 100% sure that it's Shetland wool, but it is a Scottish wool. And it's by a company called, oh, you might have to help me with the French here. It's called Bichets and Bouchets. I don't know yeah, if I'm saying that right. That sounds, sounds good to me. <laughs> okay. Very um, they have an interesting story, this little company. They're um, a French company, but they have sourced Scottish wool for um, this base and I think uh, several of their others as well. It's this gloriously squishy and soft Scottish wool. Got a lot of structure to it. I'm not going to say it's crunchy necessarily, but it's like rustic feeling. Medium rustic. Yeah. Would, it's not like... You're going to want to file your nails with it or anything. No, no, it's not it's like that. It's definitely not what you're used to. If you're used to superwash mm-hmm. yarns, you might think it feels a little rough. But we just want to remind you that not to be scared by that mm-hmm. because a lot of that will block out into softness mm-hmm. after you block it. And sure. it's really necessary for the structure of a Shetland lace shawl. Yeah, I mean, the they created the stitches to go with the yarns that they had access to and this is the kind of yarn that they had and I I can tell you from experience that knowing that a lot of people don't like working with the rougher yarns I did start designing this shawl with a superwash to something typical that you could find from any hand dyer you know and I did not like how any of the stitches looked in it I just maybe it was the wrong needle or something, I don't know, but it was just so like floopy, I think, from the from the superwash. <laughs> floopy, well, technical term right there. I think we also know from <laughs> dyeing yarns ourselves that a lot of the commercially available bases for small mm-hmm. hand dyers, they tend to all be of a certain ilk and yeah. they have a lot of springiness to them because that's what people like to feel when they're holding a skein, mm-hmm. right? Like when you go shopping for a yarn, you want to feel that squish. Yeah. You think that will and equate soft. to softness yeah. Yeah, in your final yep. project, but... Sometimes you have to make the the yarn fit the project mm-hmm. a little bit better than that if you want certain qualities in the final project to come out. And I think you've chosen the perfect yarn, Rachel. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I like honestly, I had like serious designers block with this when I was first doing it, which is probably why it took us so long to get there. Sorry, Mr. Producer. <laughs> but I did. I And it was because I was trying to use a yarn that just was not a good fit for these stitch patterns. And that's not to say you can't ever use that kind of yarn for these stitch patterns. Sometimes you can really make it work. But with the kind of structure that I was trying to do, it just really wasn't working. So um, anyway, I I think the the main thing I can say about this is get whatever yarn you love, because in the end, you have to love the way the yarn feels in your hands and you have to love working with it. My recommendation to people when they're trying to find a yarn is just get something that you love working with and that you love the fabric that it's creating um, and then just make the needle size work, you know, make Mm -hmm. the gauge work. And if you love working with it, even if it is, say, drapier than the than the pattern is mm-hmm. intended to be, that's fine. That's totally fine. As long as you are happy with the final product, that's all that really matters. Mm-hmm. As and our friend Sandy would say, <laughs> you are in charge of your own knitting. <laughs> I always oh, love when she said Sandy. that. <laughs> so for lazy knitters like me also, since this starts from the center out, mm-hmm. can you use that center piece as your gauge swatch or do you recommend swatching separately? Yeah. So um, I'm also a lazy knitter. I I don't like to swatch, especially for things like shawls. If it doesn't have to fit my body, I'm like, 
why should I bother? So what I've done is I have included the gauge for the unblocked stitch that you will be casting on for the center of the shawl. So you can, you know, knit a couple inches of it and and then get an idea of whether or not you're going to be on gauge. Mm-hmm. So that gauge is included in the pattern. Um, and then also like your typical swatch gauges in there as well. So if you want to swatch first, you can do that as well. For me, I'm always take the, the lazy route and... <laughs> Just start. Just cast on. I'm the same I'll, way. I'll rip it out and start I'm over if it's way. not going to work. I know, right? That's how I feel because when yeah. you're just dealing with the cast on that's just a few stitches, it doesn't always matter. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I would like to point out is that if your circular gauge varies greatly from mm. your flat gauge and you know that about yourself, then you may want to do a swatch. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to do the swatch for the stitch pattern for the middle part of the shawl first yep. with circular needles and get your gauge that way and then maybe do a little square swatch. Watch yeah. to see what your gauge is with this yarn in the square. Yeah, that's actually a super good point. So because the two gauges are in there, I definitely recommend checking it both when if you go ahead and cast on and check your gauge there for mm-hmm. that's your gonna be in your in the round gauge. And then knit that. I know it sucks, but knit that little <laughs> A little separate piece flat so that you'll know. And then because you can always just adjust your needle size when you mm-hmm. switch from going round to flat if if you do have a pretty big difference. Yeah. Wouldn't and be for too most big people, deal. I think it's not a problem. But sometimes mm-hmm. people have a very different circular mm-hmm. versus flat gauge. Yeah, for sure. So the other thing I wanted to talk about really quick as far as yarn substitution goes is um, fiber composition. So these stitch patterns, like I said, are definitely made to work with like that nice, light, wooly, sticky Scottish yarn. But, you know, go ahead and make your substitution if you want to, but keep in mind the fiber composition. If you're going to substitute in something that's like silk or cotton or another plant fiber, that could react really differently with these stitches. So swatch it and see if you like how the fabric looks. And if you do, go for it. But Block it too. Like I know that's another thing people don't like doing is blocking their swatches, but mm-hmm. the the blocking can have a great effect on those kind of fibers. So anyway, if you're going off script, I mean I highly encourage it. Always go off script if that's your thing. But just just check your gauge and, and block. That's mm-hmm. all. <laughs> and also we I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, but this is a non superwash yarn. Mm-hmm. And and for those of you who don't know, superwash yarns tend to have a coating on them mm-hmm. to make the fibers not felt and that can greatly affect Mm -hmm. Um, how the final product blocks out and even springs back on itself. So that's why Rachel was saying she didn't like the look of the fabric when she tried to knit it in a superwash yarn. And if you don't like it while you're knitting, you might like it even less after it's blocked. Mm -hmm. So um, they just behave very differently. They don't hold the stitches as well as Mm -hmm. the non-superwash yarn does. Yeah, it just like stretches way out and sometimes it it bounces back. It almost like shrinks back mm-hmm. rather than it's like a slow bouncing ooze. back. Yeah. It's like a slow it, it, yeah. it sneaks back. It's it what it does. And then it you does. go back to look at a shawl that you'd knit three months ago yeah. and it only fits your two year old. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, this was 80 inches. Why is it only 55 now? Yeah, exactly. What happened? <laughs> so, anyway, don't want that to happen. So uh, just a couple other things. I did build in about 10% extra into the required yardage. I think I recommended 954 yards. If you get the recommended yarn, that would be like three and a half skeins, basically. I had about a half skein left over on mine. So yeah, you should have plenty of play if you do have a little bit of variation in your gauge. Mm -hmm. But again, if you're going 
with a different yarn, just get a little extra yarn. Cause, and on your yeah. Ravelry page where you're selling the pattern, mm-hmm. do you have separate yarn suggestions? Will you when you yeah, put the pattern when, on there? Yeah, yeah. You put a couple other yeah. suggestions on there. Yeah, because if this yarn is too hard to get your hands on, um, there's other things that would work just as well. Some in available in the States and some in the UK. Well, the different options are on the Ravelry page. All right, so that pretty much wraps it up for the yarn that you will need for the pattern and also gauge and the kind of things to look out for when you're shopping for your materials. On the next episode, we will talk about casting on for the shawl and the first section. So stay tuned for that. And if you haven't gotten your copy of the Zetland shawl yet, you can find that on Ravelry. Just search Zetland, Z-E-T-L-A-N-D, and it'll come right up for you. You can get the pattern there and get all your materials and you will be all set to cast on with us next week. Thanks for listening and happy happy knitting. Thanks so much for listening. You can find me on Ravelry and on all the socials as Rachel Unraveled. And you can find Heather on Ravelry as HeatherBoyd84. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you found it. And we'll see you next time. Happy knitting! This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.